Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodowski, and welcome to the show. Two interviews today on two very human-made crises. The author Christian Prenti speaks with me about the climate crisis and the role of the state, while journalist Jesse Rosenfeld gives an update on the refugee crisis in Europe. First up, my conversation with Christian Parenti, author of numerous books, most recently Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. Christian also teaches in labor studies at NYU. He spoke with me about the complex relationship between the state and climate change mitigation under capitalism. So you said that climate mitigation is not a question of money and technology. You know, that is that we have the tools to do some very basic things that, you know, that will make a big impact and, and we have the means to pay that we could, you know, we could orchestrate something. I guess the hard question then is how to force, you know, the political, the existing political system into using the money and the technology we have. What has to happen or what... You know, why haven't we used the money and the technology yet in some ways if we have it? Right? Well, those, yeah, those are two different questions. Why we haven't used it is because powerful interests, namely the fossil fuel industry, uh, have been very organized and diligent in trying to defend the status quo. In terms of what needs to be done politically, I think the answer differs to some extent in Canada versus the United States. But to some extent, it's the same, which is there have to be strong movements that pressure government, that pressure the mm-hmm. state, and I think they have to pressure the politicians mm-hmm. and the appointed officials uh, to make them feel vulnerable so that they will exercise the state's relative autonomy vis-a-vis capital and regulate uh, fossil fuels out of existence. Now, more specifically, in the United States, we have the enabling legislation that we need So uh, the whole idea of passing some sort of comprehensive climate legislation is a bad idea and um, not going to happen because the insanity of U.S. politics being what it is. So the enabling legislation that we have is the Clean Air Act, which has been modified by the lawsuit Massachusetts versus EPA, which the Supreme Court ruled in 2007 that the Environmental Protection Agency has the obligation to regulate greenhouse gas emissions because under the language of the Clean Air Act, these qualify as uh, pollutants that are covered under the Act. So we've been waiting since then for a whole bunch of what are called tailoring rules to be created to actually implement these regulations. And the Bush administration ignored it and the Obama administration essentially ignored it until the very end. And they've been finally issuing a few, two little rules that were politically easy to do. So they squandered uh, eight years. And this, this needs to be remembered now that Obama's almost out of office and he's going to set up a foundation in which he tries to completely remake the post-presidency. He's going to try and rival the Clinton and Carter foundations. He's going to be the ultimate foundation-funded neoliberal NGO do-gooder. And mm-hmm. his core issues are going to be climate change and criminal justice, two things that he has been really bad on as a president. So anyway, the environmental movement is starting to really pressure the state in the right way. 350 has announced that they're going to target public lands. This is really important. 
25% of all fossil fuels in the United States are sourced from public lands. Yeah. So this is step one, which is like, you know, go find your own fossil fuels, but you can't have the public's. Yeah. It's also a great way to get into the issue of subsidies, because subsidies can be, you can easily get into a debate about, well, what is a subsidy? Is it, you know, the depreciation on, you know, accelerated depreciation on, on capital investment, this, that. But right. you know, like public lands, it's like, you know, this side of the line, that belongs to the public over there, that's private. This side of the line, you can't drill holes in the ground to get oil. Yeah, no leases or yeah. whatever, exorbitant prices. So I think pressuring the political class and also direct action against the infrastructure, and that's been going on with considerable success for a while now in both countries, you know. Yeah. Um, the coal-fired, new coal-fired power plants have been completely defeated in large part because of the combination of direct action plus legal like lawsuits plus lobbying, the fights against the Western coal terminals uh, on the east coast of the United, west coast of the United States, and of course the the fight against Keystone XL, et cetera, et cetera. So those uh, those are the methods. Just uh, I think that you know targeting. We I think we we could have been better about targeting the state. And that right. part of the reason we haven't done that is because there's a bit of a state phobia in the U.S. I think that's changing. I mean, I, and I think what you're saying, too, is that, you know, to replace this kind of state phobia with a turn again to, you know, what, what used to be called the developmental state. And that has gained some popularity, too. Um, I think what's interesting about your take is, you know, the developmental state isn't really sort of like a good in itself, but it's... It's this sort of short-term necessary means to achieve climate mitigation. I guess, what are, you know, on one hand, what are the challenges of making the, the developmental state, making that um, something that's feasible in today's political climate, like generating this kind of movement that will get behind that? And then what are the risks, to some extent, too, of having this kind of instrumental view of it, near, you know, that you're supporting something that ultimately you might think is not... Mm-hmm. Right, something that has to be gone beyond. Yeah, I mean the challenges are, are um, all of the challenges of uh, you know building a movement that can exercise power at that scale. And in terms of the 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 dangers, and I, I think also the cha- the challenges are to some extent intellectual, which is overcoming this. Uh, the penetration of neoliberal ideology into precincts of the left where we think that the state is bad, the state is broken, etc., etc. It's like, look, the state and capital are, are intimately connected. And for capital, there has never been and there never will be a before or after or outside of the state. And so we got to, you know, be aware of the fact that the state is not broken. It does all sorts of things that we don't like, but that's not it being broken. That's how it is working. Right. You know, that's 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 the form that it currently takes to reproduce a certain type of heavily financialized, boom and bust oriented neoliberal capitalism that is increasing inequality and is clearly totally unsustainable. But the history of industrialization throughout the world is really fundamentally only the history of the developmental state driving industrialization. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't think of examples of robust projects of industrialization that didn't have state subsidy, state planning, and really state leadership at the heart of the project. 
So yeah. it's about recognizing the way the system actually works. And, and if, we're, you know, if we're serious about mitigation in the short term, which is what the science requires that we do, I think we need to recognize the capacities that are, are potentially readily at hand for our movements. Yeah. I recently went through Naomi Klein's book, and this sounds in some ways quite quite different. I mean, I think it brings out an interesting contrast, you know, where her thesis to some extent, you know, she sees capitalism, capitalism and climate change mitigation as incompatible. Capitalism as necessarily to some extent producing climate change. Is this sort of in terms of, you know, what you were saying about the intellectual disagreements? Is this where there's this, you know, where there's a sort of contradictory point on the left and where we need to make some kind of Yeah, argument. I mean, I would, I mean, I would d disagree with, with that, you know, I mean, I think that capitalism is unsustainable, mm -hmm. but you know, capitalism can be forced to achieve climate mitigation. It has to, or uh, we're probably going to just, you know, collapse uh, with runaway self-fueling climate change. So that's, that's part of what bothers me about that analysis. I think it's important to make a distinction, which, I mean, I haven't read all of Naomi's book. I've read, read through it. But, uh, you know, she says a lot of different things which don't always add up to the same thing. And, you know, she's actually has a, a, some pretty statist stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Which and, is different, I think, than, than some of the earlier stuff. Like, there's much more, the, the German example is used. And other things. I think there's tensions within the book as well, yeah. because there's status elements and then there's elements that sort of... And there's also the way audiences receive books. And they, people frequently will take the part of an argument that is most familiar to them and overlook the parts that don't always, you know, that are, that are more challenging. But I think it's important to make a distinction between capital and capitalism, you mm -hmm. know. Capitalism, capitalist society, is... Capital, the logic of accumulation for accumulation's sake, um, the, the, the production that converts reality and, and its utilities into exchange values, that's, that's the logic of capital. Capitalism is that plus all of the other institutions of the society, the state, the public sector, um, you know, pre-capitalist, remnants of pre-capitalist cultural traditions right. and modes of production that still exist. Household so, sector. Yeah, so the question is if you ask, can capital do this? No, capital can't. Right. Can capitalist society be forced to reform itself to limit certain types of environmental damage? Yes, it can. We have already seen it do it numerous times from the scale of the city where uh, the, you know, at the turn of the 20th century and in the late 19th century, the threat posed by disease caused progressives throughout the core economies to impose real reforms on industry and limits on industry just to you know, stop typhoid and, 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 the, and it's kind of the rebellion of nature mm -hmm. at the scale of the urban. We've seen capitalist society, not capital, but capitalist society, which is to say you know, the ensemble of movements plus the state affecting industry to um, significantly clean up industry. I'm old enough to remember when the streams of New England where I was raised were they were all filthy. They were all gray. Mm -hmm. And they're now clean. And there were no raptors. There were no uh, there weren't that many birds 
when I was a kid. Bald eagles only existed in zoos. Now, now you see them in New England. The, the streams are clean. That's because of government regulation. You know, mm -hmm. it's also because of shifts in patterns of investment. There's been deindustrialization. There's been transformations and decline in agriculture. But it, it wasn't. It's not just that. Oh, New England's waterways have cleaned up because it's been economically gutted. Um, it's because there's also strict rules around building and around wastewater treatment. So that's just one small example. We've seen air quality, right. same thing. That, that doesn't solve the environmental crisis, but that's how I see climate change, that it's, it can be tricky, right? We, we confuse climate change because it has these apocalyptic implications. We confuse it with the entire environmental crisis. But the environmental crisis is an ensemble of many problems. And climate change is just the most pressing and potentially extreme uh, of these problems. Right. And, and the one that we have to solve via mitigation, you know, not because it makes capitalism sustainable, because it wouldn't, but just to buy time to deal with all the other ones. And I think it can be done. And the reason that I'm always insisting on this is like, one of the main problems we face is cynicism. And yeah. I, part of what encourages cynicism is a lack of realistic plans or explanations for how things could change. And so I think if you know, people understand the climate science and all they're left with is the answer is total transformation. Systemic change, yeah, yeah. it just seems sort of bewildering. Realistically, I mean, how would that happen in... Mm -hmm. 20 years right so you know i think a lot of people quietly actually take on a type of become cynical even as they're politically engaged and it's almost like you know they're doing the right thing but with no real commitment to winning and what i'm trying to say is no actually you know we can pull back from the brink we can force right. this system to just like you know, one more time, like just skirt over the edge and like keep careening out of control down this winding road to the next crisis. Right. It's just about like pulling the steering <laughs> wheel, like, yeah, get up, you know, not hit this curb and go over the edge, you know? Yeah. And I guess argue to the capitalists or to whoever, you know, the interest as well that, you know, it might be in your interest to not have the climate change drastically at some point um, that the, the, endanger. Yeah, your way of life as much as everyone else's, right? Right. That's about dividing capital. I mean, yeah, capital can be divided, right? Um, but that's part of our task is to get other factions of capital to realize, like that, you know, the the fossil fuel industry is not uh, not serving even the rest of capital's interests. Healthcare is the same in the U.S. where you have this small industry that's really I think you mm -hmm. actually that was that years how you said you know it's basically taxing yeah everyone else and that's the same thing that's might end up happening with climate as well because as everyone feels these effects I mean the question is again who's who's the agent and where where are the sort of strategic points mm -hmm. well I mean the agent the agent is social movements right and attacking stri various strategic points and I you know, I think that the strategic point that has been overlooked is the state and that mm -hmm. we need to be attacking the political class, uh, the vulnerable, you know, affectable members of the political class, the elected politicians and the top appointees who make the decisions about regulation. You know, so we have not, while people have been valiantly, you know, risking their lives blockading 
things like pipelines and you know hanging from the bridge and I'm all for that that's excellent stuff but you know we also need to do what the activists who defended net neutrality did they went after the top officials of the uh, FCC, you know, and they blockaded their driveways and they, they camped out in front of the FCC and uh, they brought the direct action to these powerful officials who had the decision at, you know, who had the power to make the decision and they made life uncomfortable at the scale of egos and careers and futures. Right. And it's like, this is how you're going to go down in history, pal. You mm-hmm. know, you decide. And, you know, it's about channeling, leveraging our power to, to, you know, use the egomania of these people to make the right decision. One last thing, I mean, to, to switch tracks a little bit, but I want to finish with this because it applies, I think, very much in Canada, but I think in the, state, in the States as well, is the notion that the state here is also a colonial state, um, where that, I think, has been made very clear by the fact that First Nations, for example, in Canada are some of the you know, leaders of, of the climate movement and the environmental movement. Um, but this goes back to sort of the initial questions about the state, you know, how far can we use the state in a state that, for example, for First Nations here has been very much a colonial state and one that's associated with, you know, uprooting cultures, exterminating people and stuff and just a whole lot of bad where again you know making this switch to seeing the state as something different well it's, right. i think it's about you know seeing the state as plural right i mean the state is both racist policing and social welfare mm-hmm. you know and so it's about transforming the the nature of the state and trying to diminish the repressive apparatuses and build up and democratizing the redistributive, socially productive apparatuses like education, healthcare, building infrastructure. You know, these are you know these are things that also have to be transformed, mm-hmm. right? We you know we, we don't want the state to just build infrastructure, whatever it is. Like, hey, highways and dams, that's awesome. No, no, we want like you know a better type of infrastructure, but we recognize that. Infrastructure capital doesn't build infrastructure for itself. The state builds it, and yeah. you know we need to simultaneously demand that that the state play that constructive economic role and do it in a more democratic and and also therefore in a greener, cleaner, more accountable way. So it's it's not just about like state good, state bad, more state, less state, but mm-hmm. n- not not falling for the neoliberal mythology that the state is bad one and not believing the stuff about the state is getting smaller no it isn't i mean that you know that that's the core fallacy within neoliberal ideology that the state has been in any way diminished it, it has not been it's just been transformed so what neoliberalism has done in country after country right is you you go from large public or social housing sectors to smaller so, social housing sectors and then you have larger prisons right you know it's or a, larger subsidies for condo developers right. whatever yeah, yeah. It, the state's footprint doesn't decrease it just changes form that was author and academic christian parenti on climate change and the state next an update on the situation of refugees in europe from journalist jesse rosenfeld jesse is a freelance journalist based in beirut 
but he spent significant time in Europe covering this summer's wave of migration, mostly for the Nation magazine. An accurate picture of this migration is all the more important today when it is certain that refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Eritrea, and other countries will be on the receiving end of a backlash in the wake of the Paris terror attacks. What was this experience like? Not as much for you, but you know, what, just a sort of overall picture of what this experience looks like for, for people who are, who are engaged in this track. It's because um, you're basically watching people walk and take transport um, from country to country to country that's trying to do its best to dissuade them or close its doors. And people, you know, very quickly realize the only thing they can rely on is themselves. Um, whether that involves collective action and being able to figure things out uh, you know, in large groups, whether you know, that means traveling together and coordinating crossing borders, or if it means individually paying off people smugglers at different mm-hmm. points of the way. So anecdotally, one of the interesting things is it's the only time I've been to Europe and the main alternate language I was interacting in was Arabic. Right. You know, it's, it's a completely segregated experience. They travel, people travel to refugee registration centers that are on overcrowded trains through the Balkans, that are you know, walking en masse through fields. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an incredibly grueling trek, and what's interesting is that you do see a lot of families doing it, a lot of people with young kids, ran into a lot of pre- uh, this, you know, numerous uh, pregnant women. Actually, you know, when they were pregnant, decided to go on the trip because the other option was giving birth in uh, refugee camps in Turkey or Lebanon or right. Iraq. And, uh, yeah, a kid born without an ID in a refugee camp doesn't really have that many prospects. Right. What about the level of militarization? I mean, I think we see some of that here in the media, but, I mean, I, from your reports... You had some of the, you had some reports from from these border scenes and and from other points along the journey. It seems that you know there's a change in Europe. These fences are going back up. There's a much larger sort of police and military presence around. Well, I mean, it's yeah. What the uh, this summer's wave especially did was it um, created a serious crisis for the European Union's fortress Europe system, and that inherently sort of collapsed. You saw that happen around the mass marches in Hungary where all sorts, all of a sudden the Schengen Agreement started to be negated um, and countries started putting up individual borders. And the debate in Europe and the way that Europe's dealt with it was you know, on the one side you had the German position, which was we accept that these people are coming. Let's uh, find a way to integrate them and, and then look ahead to closing our borders to future waves of people. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Hungarian position, which is white Christian Europe. And um, at this point, I mean, both those positions are questions of basically degree. Because the Germans are looking to close their borders. There's already a discussion of deporting Iraqis and Afghans. And this is the whole thing about the focus on Syria. Syrians are the vast majority, and the situation they're fleeing is absolutely horrific. But you have a policy that refuses to recognize the similarities of the reasons that people are fleeing. You know, Af- Afghanistan is the second largest number yeah. of refugees. Iraq is possibly the third, or Eritrea. Um, the conditions these people are fleeing are no worse, and often they're Western-inflicted. But you see, you know, you, there's no interest in engaging with that in 
that's something just to finish off the point, I mean, I think that's something that gets lost a lot, too. I mean, there's a lot of sort of cheerleading for the German position that we're going to welcome these people in, but I think you're right to point out that it seems like a temporary, something that's temporary, that's something that'll, to some extent, also alleviate some pressures on their labor market. But in terms of a long-term strategy, it seems that, you know, it's like, how can we re-implement Fortress Europe? Well, I mean, that's that's been explicit in the way the Germans have now been approaching Turkey and trying to offer. And this is, again, you see this sort of contradiction between a hardline ethno-nationalist approach to the Euro, uh, to, to Europe and the more nuanced, yeah, nuanced German position that follows similar goals is that Germany wanted to go pay Turkey billions of euros right. uh, and offer them visa-free access to the Eurozone and possibly restart EU negotiations. Hungary is one of the first countries opposed to that because, yeah, on the one hand, they don't want refugees. On the other hand, they don't want a major Muslim country as a political bloc within Europe. <laughs> and, and, and that sort of sums up effectively what's been going on how... European Union is is grappling with this. I mean, the near collapse of the, of the EU agreement in, in a real fundamental way, as a result of the refugee crisis, it, it 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 is a product of the time. I mean, the economic strains were already put on Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it also led to bizarre positions where you know, Greece was one of the countries that was doing the least for people, like the kind of squalor people who were living on the Mytilene and in Athens. Um, Refugee camps I saw in the Middle East were in, far, yeah, in Iraq were in far better condition than some of the right. stuff I saw in Greece. But then the Greeks had the most progressive policy, just absolutely no resources because of the economic crisis to do anything about it. Again, and, inflicted yeah. by the EU. Right. Oh, sorry. And then you go to Germany, and there's this sure everyone's having this big loving with refugees, uh, and the Germans are really proud of patting themselves on the back, and that sort of reassuring, see we're a different Germany now, which they, mm-hmm. uh, that I'd talked to people who settled in Berlin two, three years ago, Sudanese refugees that are you know, living in squats because they still can't get their papers organized um, or, or uh, can't get a, a legal a refugee status or asylum seeker process moving right. really quickly. You get a good glimpse of what's in store for those who are arriving now. And, and it is still, like, I mean, it's far more orderly in uh, processing people in Germany by the time they get there than it is in the places in the Balkans that I've seen. But you still have, you know, mass, um, you know, masses of people waiting, you know, waiting to get processed with very little support right. uh, until they are. People living, you know, for extended periods of time and refugee camps way out in the cities um, without much real access to uh, right. so a level of sort of so- to major urban Germany yeah yeah social exclusion sort of yeah. baked into the process well I mean people are getting sent to different cities to try and distribute them mm-hmm. like I was in Kassel um, sort of a medieval and industrial city and yeah, an hour outside Kassel they had a refugee camp for several thousand people and most the, and their biggest worry was that they'd been given no timeline as to when they were going to actually be able to leave the camp. Right. Um, I mean, th- these sort of scenes were minor in comparison to the you know, thousands of people living in the street that you saw, in, that you see across the Balkans, that you would see, uh, you know, in uh, in Kaledi Square, mm-hmm. uh, the train stations. But all of that, as well, is effectively a. I mean, it was a European manufactured crisis. Yeah. Um, 
there was no reason that people couldn't have been given easy travel methods to get to their destination, paid a lot less money, and you would have had less. De- you, know, you wouldn't have the same kind of dangerous or desperate scenes. Yeah. But if you want to recreate Fortress Europe, then you have to create a crisis that. Yeah, I guess the the, the power of sort of dissuasion yeah. is also in the in, in the policies. You said, yeah, you throw yeah, you know, trap everyone in the city square, create laws where they can't stay in hotels, rent cheap apartments, where they're not allowed to take public transport, so they walk on the highways. All of a sudden, people say, "Wow, these people are everywhere. How can we not deal with them?" They're, you know, they're bursting in the seams. When really, if they didn't have such obtrusive policies, yeah, this would flow very easily into a political zone of 500 million people. Airplanes are much cheaper than the boats that go between Turkey and Greece, but it's because of visa... It's oh, because yeah. of if they like if they let people fly from Istanbul or fly from, uh, in worst case, fly from Athens, people would be spending a fraction of that amount of the amount of money they're pouring into... Um, the underground economy in Europe and mostly into criminal smuggling enterprises. And you wouldn't see any of these signs of the scenes of chaos. Yeah. I want to go back to something, and you mentioned this, I think, right at the beginning of this interview, and, and it was present in your articles too. And something I think is missing a lot is this sort of, you know, the sense of agency of the refugees and also seeing this from their, pers- you know, it's, I think the perception of this again, you know, we talk about waves of a mass of people, and it, it, it's this kind of like amorphous, not you know, something without agency. Where I think the self perception is very different, and the, and the reality is is very different. I don't know if you could speak to that a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the interesting things about the story is that like I was meeting people that I, you know were like the people I hang out with and spend my time with in the Middle East when I work there. Uh, right, uh, yeah, I ran into people that I actually knew from Syria and you know, from mm-hmm. Beirut. Who were living in Beirut that were traveling along the route, and it's what yeah, it's, it's the easy story and the one that's always uh, the the one that was actively pursued is there, yeah, it's not because there isn't yeah, a strong element of truth to it as well. Is um, these poor people look at their suffering mm-hmm. um, and the victim's narrative? But what was interesting was that, especially when you talk to a lot of the younger educated people that were traveling, because this was. You know, they've been through uh, war, had no future in Syria. The discrimination they faced in Lebanon and the limited access meant they didn't really have a future there. They, it was a very different story for them. It was not you know, look at us fleeing, uh, you, know, uh, you know, pity us. We're fleeing, you know, we're fleeing uh, the war situation. It's imaginable. We don't know what to do. It's we're going to a place where we can be free, and mm-hmm. we're bringing all our skills with us. Yeah. Um, we're going to make your society. We're going to help make your society a better place. There was a real sense of confidence, especially with that class in the, of Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans to a certain extent. They were the establishment in their societies. Right. Um, they were the ones that had the resources to flee. Those they were the ones that had foresight and access um, and tools available to do it. They're they're not people to be pitied. They're yeah, people that have a right to. Uh, get to a place where they feel safe and free and you have an op- and societies have an obligation to recognize and not stand in the way of it. Yeah, you saw that when the, the mass protest marches to the Austrian border happened in mm-hmm. Hungary. Um, you saw that when there were 
the riots on the Macedonian border, mm-hmm. when yeah, the Macedonian police and, and lay dogs tried to close the border, and just you know, for days people piled up on the train tracks, and eventually they there was a day of clashes, and they pushed through, and the entire Macedonian policy changed. Right. They realized that this was an inevitable thing, and that society had to deal with it. Um, and that's, that's, I think, the story that's interested me a lot, is that people realizing that in the kind of, you know, attempts to shut them out at every stage, mm-hmm. they know this when they begin the journey, but that cumulative experience, that that um, creates a very quick understanding that what accepted, you know, what acceptance and getting through to the West is going to result in, you know, the, the only way to do it is to, you know, demand and act on your rights. And that's, that I think is, is the far more important story, especially when, you know, the West is so involved in creating the crisis in the first place. That was journalist Jesse Rosenfeld on the situation of refugees in Europe. That's all for this week. Talk to you again in a couple weeks' time.